the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. Today, we're putting OJ on the couch and his book, If I Did It, Confessions of the Killer. Uh, this is a, a particularly interesting show that you don't want to miss, not one minute, because it's the first time that all the people who have been involved in the book, if I did it, are together on one show, and this may not happen again. <laughs> My guests today um, are Peter Haven, uh, who is the attorney for the Goldman family, Charlene Martin, a literary agent, both of them in Los Angeles, Eric Kampman, coming to you from New York. He's the founder and president of Beaufort Books and the CEO of Midpoint Trade Books. Later in the show, we'll be having Pablo Fenvez. He is the ghost writer of the book. And after that, Kim and Fred Goldman. So, hold on to your seats. This is not going to be um, <laughs> mainstream media. We're going to tell you really how it is, if he did it. So, first, welcome to the show, Peter, Charlene, and Eric. Thanks, nice to be here. Thank you very much. Why don't we start with Peter? Um, how long have you been working with the Goldmans? And if you could give us sort of a brief chronology of how uh, the book became the Goldmans' property and why they had to publish it. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to do that. I've been uh, representing the Goldmans for approximately one year now. It's literally roughly the one-year anniversary. And we first started off uh, trying to acquire uh, a general right of publicity of uh, Mr. Simpson. Uh, this was, at the time, perceived to be the only way that we could try to get an asset that he had that could in any way remotely satisfy the judgment. Uh, people always suggest, you know, why don't you go chase this or go chase that. Um, without getting into too many of the details, the practical reality is it's virtually impossible to chase down different potential assets that he has. After uh, our right of publicity motion did not succeed, and it was a very sort of novel and innovative, innovative attempt under the California law, uh, that's when, literally, uh, after the motion uh, was denied, that's when we learned for the first time about this, uh, uh, this book deal that he had already cooked up and we learned later that he had basically made well over $600,000 without disclosing any of it publicly. And then we went about the process of slowly trying to uh, tie up this asset and eventually acquire it. And the only way to really turn an asset like that into any conceivable monetary value towards a judgment is eventually to uh, tell it to a publisher. Now, in this case, uh, Mr. Simpson did what has become something of a pattern um, I've noticed in the last year. He fought us uh, tooth and nail to prevent us from acquiring the book. And then just before it became clear that he was going to lose that fight, <clears throat> he then uh, had the dummy corporation that he created uh, file for bankruptcy. He literally pushed it into bankruptcy in an attempt 
to destroy the book rather than allow us to possess it. And it was the act of pushing it into bankruptcy that both uh, doomed his attempt to keep us from getting the book and also mandated that the book would eventually have to be published and sold uh, because we were then eventually given the responsibility of taking this asset, turning it into as good or as positive a product as we possibly could, and then publishing it for the benefit of all the creditors of this uh, bankruptcy estate, uh, not least of which was, of course, ourselves, but also of the Browns as well. So that's as short a synopsis as I can give you. Yes, and it, it explains um, well some of the things that are going on right now. Um, and, of course, I've been saying how his current problems are no coincidence in terms of them happening on the same day that the book was released. And one of the reasons is because he wanted to rest control, um, just like he did, you know, wanted to prevent the Goldmans from getting the book then. He wanted to rest control of the news um, from the book and onto himself, even if it meant doing another criminal act. Charlene... I tend to agree with that uh, to a certain extent. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Charlene, why don't you take it from there? Um, I know that you, since you and I have the honor to have you as my literary agent, I know personally how ethical and thoughtful you are and that you would have wrestled with the implications of being the agent for this book. And tell us why you stepped into this minefield that got Judith Reagan fired. Thank you, Carol. I appreciate that comment. Um, you know, I I followed this this case uh, from 13 years ago to to the present time, and have always felt a great deal of empathy for the Goldman family and for the Brown family. Uh, and I became even more acutely aware of it when uh, Harper Collins was forced to terminate the publication of the book, and uh, and then followed, of course, the rights to this book through the bankruptcy proceedings this summer. Um, I reached out to the Goldman family through Peter Haven and their bankruptcy attorney, David Cook, and offered um, any expertise I could lend in helping to convince the court to award those rights to the Goldman family. And when they were successful in, in obtaining those rights, the Goldman family then retained me as their literary agent. Um, I didn't have to think too long or too hard about it. It was, in my mind, a right and ethical thing to do. And despite the fact that this book had originally been intended to benefit financially the pockets of Mr. Simpson, this was no longer that same book. And so um, I saw this now as writing the Goldman narrative rather than the Simpson narrative. And I wanted to be a part of reinventing it and creating ancillary material and bringing it to the public's attention for what it really is, in my mind, a, a true confession of a double murderer, and to allow those who weren't as convinced as I was to make up their own minds. So it was, for me, um, uh, a decision that um, was one that I, I did give a great deal of thought to, but never second-doubted. And how was it? How difficult was it to find a publisher? And how did you ultimately uh, decide upon Beaufort Books? Well, initially, I knew that this book would have a great deal of difficulty finding the right home, and because of the structure of many of the 
bigger publishers in New York and the fact that this was a book that needed to make the market relatively quickly, um, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get answers uh, as quickly as I wanted to. And I also knew that it was going to be... Um, you know, very politically incorrect for some of the other larger publishers to take this book on once Rupert Murdoch had burned it. Um, so I did, in fact, determine that a small publisher, a publisher that had an entrepreneurial spirit and a publisher that uh, believed uh, in, in the value of this material and the importance of it would be the way to go. And there was really only one choice for me, and that was Beaufort Books and Eric Campman. So once I brought the book to him and, and he um, read the material and we discussed the plan of how we were going to repackage it and then he had his conferences with the Goldman family, I think we all felt very, very uh, symbiotic in, in mm-hmm. moving forward together. And, Eric, I understand uh, in the news today it says that there an additional 50,000 books are being printed, and that's on top of 150 in the initial printing. Is that correct? That is right. Well, congratulations. Now, why uh, this? I, I uh, from looking over your list, it seems like this is the most, well, from anyone's list, actually, this seems like it's the most controversial book that you have published. Um why did you agree? What was your feeling about it? What made you um, part of this symbiotic um, group? What, made, what were you looking, what, what was your vision in publishing it? Well, uh, I want to make one thing clear that I, I didn't seek this book. It came to me through Charlene. And mm-hmm. Charlene has actually done a very good job in describing how she is basically the fulcrum for this whole project. I mean, she reaches to the other side, which I knew nothing about, which was all the legal goings-on that are incredibly complicated. And most people will never understand most of it. They just understand that the book was uh, Deep Six last year, and, you know, nobody heard very much, but a lot was going on. And she got involved early enough so that when the the uh, decision came down on the side of the Goldmans and the lawyers representing them, that she was in place to find a publisher. So she had met me uh, in May, and we had had dinner together, and we were working on another project, or thinking about working on another project. And she liked the model that we had developed here two and a half years ago, which was a four uh, books that don't necessarily quite fit into the mainstream for one reason or another. Um, the key to everything, from my point of view, is we have a very powerful smaller company that kind of conforms to what you've already heard. And what really appealed to me, besides the discussion I had with the Goldmans, was the team that Charlene put together, a uh, combination of Michael Wright, myself, uh, the whole legal team. Uh, it, was a, it was a great, um, just very powerful group of people that for an amazingly short period of time have worked uh, day in and day out to get this thing right. None of us knew exactly how this book was going to do. Um, it, when it was first announced that I was going to be involved in it, um, I got a lot of hate mail. I'm not used to hate mail, but I got it. Um, I had a um, discussion with um, Denise Brown on national television that uh, was kind of interesting. But I knew in my heart that what um, Charlene was saying about 
the ethical map had been kind of reversed. And now O.J. Simpson was not going to benefit from this, but his words are going to condemn him and point to him as the, the, the murderer in this story. And so that his own words would now, you know, uh, turn him into the, uh, <clears throat> what the jury, his own words were what the jury never heard, but now America can hear. And to me, that was a uh, that was just a great thing. The other thing is, I knew my company could uh, my companies could handle this thing as if we were the big companies. And in fact, in a period of one month, as the Oprah Show hit, we were able to have books shipping into bookstores to meet the initial demand that happened over the weekend. And um, so, I think the whole thing from the very beginning has been. Uh, the way I describe it is everything that could have gone wrong in this process did not happen. Hmm. <clears throat> well, um, I, Charlene and Peter, have you been uh, receiving hate mail too, or have any of you been getting death threats or any kinds of um, feel, feel that you were in danger at any time? Well, you know, Denise Brown was kind enough to uh, list on her website all of our contact information. <laughs> so those that do uh, want to reach out to me just have to reach out and touch, not too far. And I fax, phone, or email. Um, what about a map? Did she put a map on there to your house? A Google map, absolutely. Um, but I have gotten um, a fair amount of calls and letters and, and faxes and emails and you know, it, it, what I think is more interesting is what the silent majority is saying. And what they are saying is that we support this book, and we support the Goldman's right to publish this book, and we support the freedom of the press. And those people that are diabolically opposed to it are also entitled to their right to speak out. That's one of the most beautiful things about this country. We do have that right of free speech. So although I don't happen to agree with those letters and calls that I get from from that particular point of view, um, I certainly understand that they're entitled to express it. Um, fortunately for me, you know, it has not been a deterrent in any way, shape, or form, and um, really probably motivates me even more to make sure that that as many books uh, get sold as we possibly can, because I think it's a very valuable book. And Peter, yep. Yeah. Um, uh, Charlene and Eric have been fantastic, and I, I have been involved in this effort basically from the outset. And the one thing that has sort of marked every individual who is now a part of this effort is that when they were first given the opportunity to consider joining this effort, uh, you know, almost everyone had an instant reaction, yes, that's something I want to be a part of. And that is not the case with most people, you know, not most attorneys, uh, I think, would have turned down a pursuit of this nature. I think most literary agents would have turned it down. Most publishers would have turned it down. Uh, this was really a pursuit where everyone really strongly believed, uh, for whatever personal reasons that they had, they were doing the right thing. And I'm confident that the book that we've prepared reflects that. I personally haven't received any hate mail or anything like that. Uh, maybe that'll change, uh, but okay. it wouldn't. It wouldn't alter my conviction in, in what we've done in our pursuit of it at all. Yes, I think. I think a, a large part of the problem is that people, until they actually read the book, 
which I certainly encourage people to do, um, they have uh, the wrong idea about it. I mean, they have sort of their own uh, misperception of what they expect to be in the book. And when you read it, um, it really, it really does. Uh, you know, you can understand why it was worth publishing. I mean, it really does uh, certainly seem like a confession. I mean, I call it a petri dish crawling with psychopathology <laughs> that should erase any shadow of a doubt that indeed OJ did it. So it also, um, it there's something you, really satisfying about reading it. Yeah, it gives you a great insight into the way uh, he thinks in particular, and people like him think in general. I mean, you really. He's trying to say things in a way that he thinks make him look better, and they really just make him look worse. Yes. Carol, one of the things, this is Eric, one of the things that um, was operating against us in terms of public perception of this book is the only people, and this is not, that's an exaggeration, but the, the loudest voice, the voices we heard coming up to the publication of the, voice, uh, the book were the people that were opposed to the publication of the book. Uh, for example, De- Denise Brown. I mean, she had five or six reasons why this book should never see the light of day, and that was getting uh, that was getting publicized, and people were hearing it. And now, had she read it at that no, point? No. She has she read, read it, it to, to today? No, I'm sure she hasn't. She's never admitted that she has read it. In fact, she keeps referring to it as a manual for murder. And I think that if the day comes when she ever does read it, uh, she will be embarrassed by continually uh, referring to it as that, because that is probably the number one biggest misconception about what is between the covers yes. of this book. Yes. Uh, if anything, if this was a manual for anything at all, Carol, it's a manual for women who are in abusive relationships to recognize themselves and get out. Yes. Um, but this is not a how-to book. Yes. It's a manual, it's a manual to, to avoid murder. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for joining us, joining me, joining us all on the show. Uh, Peter Haven, again, the attorney for the Goldman family. Charlene Martin, a literary agent in Los Angeles. And Eric Campman, the founder and president of Beaufort Books, the publisher of If I Did It, and the CEO of Midpoint Trade Books, which is a distributor. So, again, thank you, and I wish you all the best. Uh, with this book, which you did, uh, which you were right in saying is not a blueprint for murder, but really rather, especially for women, how to avoid being in those kinds of relationships until they become a victim like Nicole. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. have been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. You've got to stay tuned for uh, more on OJ on the Couch. Uh, coming up is Pablo Fenvez, the ghostwriter of the book, and after him, Kim and Fred Goldman. As I said, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. 
The Kerry Douglas Show, with the CEO of Worldwide Music Incorporated and the founder and publisher of Gospel Truth Magazine, Kerry Douglas. By tuning in weekly, you will gain insight, tips, and tools to help get your career started. From how to market yourself to distribution of your product, learn the power of faith-based marketing and much more on The Kerry Douglas Show. Join Kerry each week with guests from the gospel music industry, entrepreneurs, speakers, and authors as they discuss faith-based news, events, and trends. The Kerry Douglas Show with Kerry Douglas broadcasts each Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, and is brought to you by Gospel Truth Magazine and Worldwide Music Incorporated on the Voice America channel. The Kerry Douglas Show with Kerry Douglas, your premier source for faith-based entertainment, news, events, and trends. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We have um, a very special show today talking about uh, the book that has just been released, If I Did It, Confessions of the, the Killer. Uh, we're putting O.J. on the couch with all of the people who are involved in his book. And right now in this uh, segment of the show, we're going to be talking with Pablo Finviz, who is the ghostwriter of the book. Welcome to the show, Pablo. Well, thank you very much for having me on. You know, it's pretty ironic to be calling you the ghostwriter since I think you're the <laughs> most yes. well-known ghost that there has been in literature or one of them. Well, so much for laboring in relative anonymity. <laughs> for all those years. <laughs> yeah, I've always said, I've, you know, I'm very comfortable with my life. You know, the people in the book industry who need to know who I am know me, and the people in the film industry know me. But I've never been, uh, I've never been that comfortable in the limelight. But so be it. <laughs> well, let's start at the beginning. Um, why? I know you met Judith Reagan at the National Enquirer years ago, and then you lost touch. Why you? I mean, you must have asked yourself this numerous times. Why do you think that she turned to you? I mean, I'm not, obviously she must think you're a good writer, but uh, but why of all the people you, especially since she presumably knew that you testified against O.J., I mean, for the prosecution in the criminal trial, talking about the wailing dog, and and yet she still chose you? Well, uh, I think basically... As you said, I did meet Judith at the National Enquirer, but that was back in 1978-79. And uh, we lost touch. She went off to build her empire, and I, I went to Hollywood to write movies. And she, you know, in the late 90s, she started calling me and basically telling me, oh, you've got to get into the book business. It's wonderful. And, and I kept putting it off because I was fairly busy writing films. And uh, But finally, in, in, in 2001, I wrote a book for her. 
And the, the, to answer your question, I wrote, you know, another dozen books for her, and uh, I, I guess I was fairly good at it, and I became her go-to ghostwriter. I see. So uh, when this came up, she did call me, and, and, and she was well aware of sort of the Twilight Zone quality uh, mm-hmm. of, of asking a guy who had testified against <laughs> O.J. to uh, ghostwrite his book. But, um, you know, it had been a long time, and... Uh, it was history. Well, tell us how it felt. If you could um, help us to get into your skin, how it felt to be sitting in the room with OJ. Um, you you say in the in your uh, prologue that um, you felt then and you still feel now after having spent time with OJ that uh, he was and is guilty. So how did it feel? Um, did, did you have some kind of um, uh, psychological reaction that's still haunting you, or how would you describe it? You know, I think basically we we did get off to a rocky start. He was supposed to show up at the at the hotel in Coconut Grove at you know ten in the morning, and he showed up around noon, and then he didn't want to come up. He was nervous about meeting me, and um, he asked if I would come down to the lobby restaurant, which I did, and and he he sort of hobbled to his feet because of his bum knee and shook my hand, and he's very charming. He's got this, you know, he's a very charismatic guy, believe it or not, uh, just this sort of great smile. And, oh, I uh, know. I, I'm not exactly met him, met him, but I uh, was sitting next to him in the men's county jail in Los Angeles because during the time that he was incarcerated there, I happened to be uh, wearing my hat as a forensic psychiatrist and examining someone in the next booth, you know, across the glass next to him. And he had the women uh, who were visiting him, uh, some of whom, I guess, or all of whom were attorneys or paralegals or something, and he had them mesmerized with his charm. Oh, he's very charming. But, you know, and he, he shook my hand and, and, you know, indicated the chair next to him. And before I'd even sat down, he, he said something about, you know, what is this business about, you know, a wailing dog? And how, how can you put a man away on the testimony of a wailing dog? And right away he was referring to what we were just discussing, the fact that, you know, many years earlier I had heard, you know, what became known as the plaintive wail of the of uh, Nicole's dog, the Akita, and that helped establish a timeline for the murder. And guess O.J. was telling me, I know who you are, buddy. So he made it clear right from the start that he knew who I was. And yet he went forward with it. Oh, he went forward with it, and we went upstairs, uh, but um, but he was still very nervous, and the very first thing he said to me was, I'm not going to talk about the murders because I wasn't there that night, and I don't know anything about it. So... You know, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. I sort of said, well, so what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. And basically, I called Judith Regan, and I, you know, my inclination was, let's pull out now, because, uh, you know, I just don't get this. I, you know, I told O.J., I thought I was here to listen to a confession or even a hypothetical confession, whatever that might mean. But um, O.J. eventually calmed down, and he, you know, as much as apologized, he admitted that he was a little bit nervous, and we got started. And, um, he, you know, he said, well, let's start with the easy stuff, which had been my intention all along. And, uh, you know, I started right from the day he met uh, Nicole and his crumbling marriage to Marguerite, and, and we walked through it. And, and, you know, by the end of that first day, you know, obviously I don't have a therapist license, but I, I often tell people that, that I function almost like an unlicensed therapist. You know, people, yeah. people relax, they, they, they open up. 
they find themselves, you know, remembering things that they that were long buried, and and we had a chance to explore his history a little bit, and even you know talked about his father and uh, and, and that stormy relationship, and he was very comfortable by the end of the day. Yes. Now, one of the things um, that I wanted to ask you about was, uh, of course, the the chapter the um, the, the most uh, the chapter that everybody wants to read the most uh, is the one about what happened that night. Um, and, you know, and I'll tell you. Can I? I'm sorry to. Sure. Uh, go ahead. No, I find that you know very uh, troubling because <laughs> you know to me that's actually the least interesting chapter in the book. Well, I guess as I mean they're all very interesting and it was as as you know as a psychiatrist who during the trial I did a lot of trial analysis for the media and it was very um I guess uh, validating to find that even though he, he what he thought one of the motivations for his his wanting to do this book besides money um was to prove everyone wrong who had hypothesized about him before and um, so it was very interesting to see a lot of the rest of the book, not just the chapter that's called The Night in Question, but um, and to see that a lot of these things that, that I had hypothesized about in regard to what was going through his mind, were act- he, in fact, um, betrays himself by actually saying, I mean, not in so many words, but he, he shows that, what the relationship was like and so on. But there's one thing I, I wanted to, um, from that chapter, the thing that I found most interesting as a psychiatrist was Charlie um, was the 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 imaginary you believed it's imaginary accomplice that you named Charlie. I was right. Correct. Well, you know when when he when this the, one of the first things he said to me was, you know I couldn't have done this alone, and subsequently he 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 changed his recollection of that event. But when he said it, you know I kept my voice flat and I showed no emotion and um, I said all right well uh, who was with you then and he basically was shrugging his shoulders and I said well look if if we're going to have to t- we're going to talk about this accomplice we have to give him a name and again he was noncommittal and I said why don't we call him Charlie and he said you know fine whatever you want and that and that's the way we proceeded and he he began to tell me things about what Charlie you know had done or might have done or or the way that you know Charlie had some news for him about Nicole that set him off and, and that he took Charlie with him on the short ride to the Bundy condo. And, you know, the more we sort of talked about this Charlie character, the less I believed that Charlie existed. Because and why? It just, it, it just seemed to me like a sort of a, a convenient way of, you know, not to use a psychological term, but almost like, you know, it was his alter ego. He was compartmentalizing. He was looking for somebody else, you know, to, to to take responsibility or or something. Well, that's interesting. I actually that was my first reaction uh to describe Charlie as an alter ego and and I thought of him as having seemed real to OJ because OJ as he describes that night really does um seem to be in a very dissociated state, you know, where um where he wasn't in touch completely with reality and what he was doing. And and in a sense, Charlie was, uh, like Jiminy Cricket, a voice of conscience, you know, when he was telling, um, he told him not to go to Nicole's house that night. He didn't think it was a good idea. And then at the end, he said, Jesus Christ, O.J., what have you done? So at first, I was thinking of it that way, too, as just, and it, and it fit with his um, psychopathology, you know, that he that he does have this, 
you know, that's how he's able to even conduct himself the way he does today, where these, there's one part of him that's sort of in touch with reality and another part that's fantasizing, uh, making things up the way he wants it to be in a narcissistic way. But then I started remembering, um, at the time of the murders, there was this underground rumor, I'm sure you heard it too, where, that there was an accomplice, and one of the people who was suggested as the possible accomplice was his son Jason, because um, it was said that Jason resented Nicole for having, uh, to him it seemed as a little boy, that Nicole stole his father away from his mother, Marguerite, O.J.'s first wife. Right. And so, so what do you think about that, how real it is or whether it is this alter ego? You know, I'll be honest with you, it's very hard for me to pass judgment. I, you know, I, I communicated what he communicated to me as accurately, as, as honestly as possible. And I walked away from the Charlie thing not believing it. Uh, but there are certain things that make you wonder, you know, where did the, where did the knife go? Where did the bloody clothes go? How did the Bronco get back into the driveway if there was no Charlie to put it there? Uh, so there, there are unanswered questions, obviously, uh, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, argue that that uh, that he he doesn't exist definitively. But I came away feeling no, he's mm-hmm. not real. I mean, um, as you as you may recall, James Earl Ray, you know, talked about this guy called Raoul, and uh, there was never any Raoul that anybody found. Yes, I mean, I, I guess it's kind of complicated because a lot of the times the people who commit murder do have this kind of personality where a part of them dissociates from the other part, and especially during the crime itself, um, because those are the kinds of personalities that are more likely are able to commit murder. So it is, um, you know, it, it is a fascinating question, though, and I, I wonder if, as more and more people read this book whether that question of uh, is going to resurface you know who if there is and who is uh, this imaginary accomplice no absolutely I completely agree with you on that now what do you think is the reason are the reasons you 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 mentioned some in your prologue for why OJ did it why OJ did the book why yes why uh, <laughs> why he did the book well you know I, I look there was uh, the, the first thing that that popped into my head was that he's doing it for money uh, the second possibility was, you know, as a fairly narcissistic guy who's been pampered his whole life, been put on a pedestal, he, he wanted the attention. And the third possibility was that he really genuinely wanted to confess. And perhaps he didn't even know consciously that he wanted to confess, which is more your area. You know, sometimes there's an urge to be found out, I think. And maybe that, yeah. was, a, that was at play here. But all I know is that from my point of view, um, even if there was a limited chance that he was going to confess, I was really curious. I, I was given an op- being given an opportunity to sit in a room with a man that I believe had killed two people, and I was being given an opportunity to listen to his confession or a version of a confession. Yeah. And uh, it was too compelling to not do it. Absolutely. And, and I, uh, I think another reason, as I was saying before, was to prove people wrong about their hypotheses about him, and then also to show that he was the good guy and Nicole was the enemy, and to try to prove that he wasn't obsessed with her, which, of course, through the book, um, it, it becomes clear that, indeed, he w- was obsessed with her, despite all his protestations. Well, you know, that's actually very interesting, because one of the things 
look, when the book first came out, there were there were a couple of major issues that people were upset about. One of them was this the, 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 about money. People assumed OJ stood to profit, and and indeed he had created a shell company, and we had been duped, and he did profit. Um, now, of course, the money goes to the Goldmans and, and to the lawyers who've been helping them for more than a decade and to the foundation that's been set up in Ron's name. That was one issue. The other issue was the element about, you know, think about the victims. And let me tell you, it was very hard to sit in a room with O.J. and not think about Ron and not think about Nicole and not think about their respective families. So I did think about them. I found that argument a little bit specious. I mean, when whenever you, you know, when some... A network puts on John, a movie about John Benet Ramsey or the Menendez brothers or Jeffrey Dahmer or uh, any of these sweeps week winners. No, nobody ever talks about the victims, so that was a little bit unusual for me. Now, the, the recent, the, the the one criticism that I that I've heard a couple of times about the current um, incarnation of the book is that you know he's bashing Nicole, and to me, that's actually. You know, if you stop to think about that, that's what makes the book so compelling. Yes. That, that O.J. Simpson is using the classic language of the abuser yes. to describe Nicole. You know, I gave that woman everything. She had no idea what I did for her, how lucky she was. And how does she repay me? By doing drugs and taunting me and whoring around. So for me, you know, like, that, that can be summed up in a very simple phrase. If I did it, she had it coming. Yes, yes. So, so I think that... It's really important when people read that book. It's not like, you know, yes, O.J. murdered her, and yes, in some ways he's now murdering her character. But, you know, you have to stop and think, this is the messenger, and the message is going to be about him and what a great guy he was. Yes, and it's the fact that he calls her the enemy and says, she's ruining my life, Uh, she'll be the death of me, in fact, he says. Um, that you you perfectly see how it led up to that night and his ultimately killing her. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, so thank that, you. Yes. Well, no, that's that's all. Okay. Anyway, I, I'm glad I was able to talk to you a little bit about it and clarify that. You know, I uh, and I wish people would read the book in its entirety and and uh, not focus so much on the more ghoulish aspects. Of yes. Book. Yes, I agree. Well, thank you very much, Pablo Finbez, for uh, coming on the show and uh, <laughs> um, letting us uh, see behind the uh, under the sheet of the ghost. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate your time. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Pablo Finbez, the ghost writer of If I Did It. We're talking about uh, O.J. on the couch today, putting him and the book on the couch. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Coming up is Kim and Fred Goldman, so stay tuned. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? 
Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer, and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with easy to understand tools and tips with his weekly guests jim draws from successes with professionals college high school and youth teams coaches and players learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure tension and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with championship thinking every tuesday at 4 p.m pacific time right here on america's voice voice america voiceamerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're putting OJ on the couch, and we're talking with all the people involved in his uh, new book called If I Did It, Confessions of the Killer. So um, with me now are Kim and Fred Goldman, the sister and father of Ron Goldman, uh, who was unfortunately in the wrong place at the wrong time, as this book makes even clearer than we learned about during the original trial. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank you for coming on because I know that uh, since the June 12, 1994, this has been quite a roller coaster for you and a, a never-ending ordeal, and um, it has to be very wearing. Well, there's no question it is. And if I if I may correct a, a statement, um, I think that you just made, and that is, uh, it's no longer the killer's book. It's no longer his. Uh, that asset was taken away from him in bankruptcy court. And, uh, sure, I didn't mean to imply that it was his in terms of, yes, we actually talked with your attorney, Peter Haven, earlier in the show. So I didn't mean that it was, yes, the profits are not going to him. They are, in fact, going to the Ron Goldman Foundation for Justice. And uh, maybe you could give us start off by giving us a couple of words about what that actually, what you hope to do with that foundation. Um, I, hi, uh, this is Kim. Um, hi, I Kim. Just, uh, um, the foundation, um, the Ron Goldman Foundation for Justice. Um, my father and I started that um, very recently in an order, in an effort for us to give back to other victims and to assist um, victims of crime with financial resources or legal resources. Um, we just all know that it's such a difficult struggle and sometimes we don't always get the resources available to us. So um, it's in its infancy stages, but my dad and I have been committed to advocating for victims and survivors for the last 13 years, so this is finally an opportunity for us to give back a little and help as much as we can. Well, that's wonderful. Um, I want to start with how you felt reading this book for the first time. When was that and how did you feel? 
whichever well, one of you would like to start first. Sure. Um, well, uh, it wasn't actually that long that I read it um, the first time, skimmed through it, and uh, and then ultimately um, read the whole thing. It was uh, a, a difficult read for me because I recognized that I was reading the words of the same monster, the same beast that murdered Ron. Uh, very painful, very difficult. Uh, the, the worst for me uh, was the specific chapter and when she makes mention of the fact that he taunts Ron and, and makes fun of him. Um, it, it was difficult, but the other side of that is it's, I read that and, and ultimately was able to see so clearly what kind of monster he really is. Uh, this is someone, besides being a, a, a murderer, is a, is a textbook case of an abuser. And uh, it was difficult to read his words and how much he how much he verbally um, criticizes Nicole and and uh, calls her names, etc. And Kim, what was the worst or the hardest part for you? Um, I, I to echo my father's sentiments. I think you know the, the hardest part for me was listening to him describe um, what happened that night, um, which we believe to be pretty close to the truth. Um, to hear about how he you know, was sort of mocking and, and laughing um, at Ron was, was very difficult. Um, but, you know, I, it, it, it gives you, as again, what my dad said, it gives you an insight as to who he is. So um, it was just, it's hard to hear it in his in his words versus yes. what he testified for him. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, he he talks about, um, if you if you look at how he was feeling before uh, approaching that night, Talking about himself getting old and um, having physical problems, his arthritis and so on. And then Ron came in and actually there was um, a jealousy. Uh, Ron was young, he was in the prime of life, he was handsome, he was, um, you know, doing these martial arts moves that, that's what you're referring to that OJ mocked. Um, and really what he was was the antithesis of what O.J. felt about himself, that he was at that point, everything that he had lost. And I think that, um, you know, it was it was his jealousy and his, his realization of, of how he wanted to be Ron, in a sense, that also fueled some of his rage. And, and something else, um, I, I know it, it uh, you know, during the trial, uh, of course, it was, talked about Ron being in the wrong place at the wrong time, but I hope you realized, and, and I'm sure this was painful too, but at least it explains things a little better, how uh, O.J. earlier in the book talks about how he came to uh, Nicole's house when she wasn't expecting him, and he looked in the window, and there she was having sex with another man on the couch, and there were candles, and there was soft music. And when O.J. came that night to Nicole's house, he also heard music, and um, I, I, I guess he could see a glow that was probably, you know, similar to candles. And um, he wrongly assumed uh, that that she was waiting for Ron, that Ron was going to be just like that other man. And so it was, you know, more than just sort of a trite saying in the wrong place at the wrong time, but it was actually more of like a flashback that O.J. had to that very, uh, for him, you know, very traumatic episode, seeing his uh, ex-wife actually having sex with another man. And that was 
he transferred all his feelings that he had, his rage that he had towards that other man, and wrote Ron into the story. You know, it said for him that was what he was uh, thinking was going to be happening with Ron too. Well, you know, it, that's 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 an interesting um, that's an interesting you know. I, I don't really know if I've if I've ever processed it that way. I think that he absolutely, the killer, um, had an issue with any other person being in, in her life and being a priority that wasn't him. Um, he viewed her as his property. Um, you know, he talks of himself and, you know, everybody else bows down to him. So my brother showing up on the scene and being there, um, I don't know if at that moment, moment he was capable of, of really understanding what was happening other than, you know, this person's in my way and... You know that my brother was probably get, trying to help Nicole, and you know maybe he just hated that fact. I mean, I don't, I don't know, but yes, that he was trying to protect her too, right? right. That he right. he was his um, martial arts and you know his attempts were really to protect uh, Nicole, which I mean, I guess that that must also give you some solace, um, knowing that he that even OJ acknowledges that he died a hero. I mean, OJ doesn't call him a hero, but I mean, you can see that in this book. Yeah, I I actually have I've um I've often said that, you know, I wish that my brother was a little bit more selfish that night and I wish that he would have run. Um but that would have been um completely contrary to his his personality. He was very much my protector growing up. He's very much a protector and um you know, loved everybody in his life and wouldn't want any harm to come to anybody that he cared about. So as much as I wish he would have left, that wouldn't have been him. Mhm. And Fred, do you have any uh, comments? Pretty much the same thing. Uh, you know, most assuredly, Ron and, and Nicole were not involved. But um, more than anything, uh, as Kim said, Ron made a decision to stay um, and, and try to help, and he's my hero. Yes. And that's why you are um, continuing your courageous fight to honor his memory uh, by by fight I mean that this hasn't been easy um, to face all the criticism and publish this book correct? Well no it hasn't but in part it's because people just still don't understand Um, uh, I would assume you talked about it earlier but uh, the reality is we had had really no choice Uh, that book uh, was going to see the light of day somewhere somehow and if we didn't take control of it uh, through uh, the bankruptcy court and agree to monetize it, it would have been somebody else, and it might very well have been the killer himself through another publisher mm. uh, would have seized it and, and gone ahead with it. At least this way we feel that um, by us having some control over it, we, we can somewhat direct it to where it belongs, and that is, as v- we view it, this is as close to an admission of guilt as we're ever going to see, and it also portrays him as the beast, the monster that he is. He's proven in recent days is more of the same. Yes, yes, it is interesting. Uh, I, I saw an interview that you did or read something where you said that uh, it's the same mindset that he had going into that uh, room that he had going into towards to Nicole's house, I mean, towards Nicole's house, and yes, it's that kind of emotionality, it's that rage, it's that I'm going to win, I'm going to get revenge um, that takes over. I I wonder also if you noticed, um, in this book, um, 
you know, it, it explains, there's part of it that explains why O.J. has been so horrendous to uh, Ron's family and to the Browns, but it seems especially to uh, to you, Fred, and you, Kim. And, um, you know, I, I think there's some of the answers are in this book. Uh, I think he's very jealous, first of all, of your family. That was a more loving family coming together to honor Ron than what he came from. And in particular, um, he talks about his argument with his father, who was physically abusive, when he was 16 years old and he wound up not talking to him for 10 years. And, at, and that argument had to do with his mother getting angry that he was disrespectful to his sister. In a sense, um, in a sense, you know, he has, you have become um, sort of this, you know, on the one hand, the good family that he never had, and also he's projecting sort of some of this uh, leftover anger that he has towards his father and his sister onto you. Well, I will say this, having been a, a psych major, um, <laughs> I, I think that all sounds legitimate. Um, however, for this particular situation and for him, I think it gives him too much credit. I think... Um, well, unconsciously... Yeah. I, I would tend to I, agree I, with Kim. I, just, I, mean that in, in the, I don't mean that to be disrespectful. I just mean it that I think for my father and I, with him, I think he hates the fact that we have not let up on him, that yeah. we have... We have vilified him, that we have been persistent in our pursuit against him. He, I know that he has a strong venom towards me personally because I'm a strong woman who hasn't backed yes. down. He hates women. Um, it could all absolutely be tied back to his childhood, but for me, giving him, you know, an excuse is... No, uh, no, no. Or, or, no, or, frankly, or frankly, that much credit. Well, uh, I think first I'm and foremost, I think first and foremost, he just absolutely can't stand anybody that in any way stands up to him yes and yeah. and because of that uh he gets angry with anybody and and we've seen it like i said a few minutes ago we've, we've seen the exact same person in the past few days uh he can control everything if anybody does yeah. anything he doesn't like he wants to be in charge will intends on being in charge he did it with nicole and he yeah. believes that by uh with his statement of long time ago uh, if it means uh, not working, he'll never work a day right, in his life right. uh, to avoid paying. Right. No, I, I, I certainly in no means by trying to explain these things, actually I'm trying to give the insights to you, but I'm certainly in no way trying to excuse any of his behavior. Mm -hmm. And these these are the, you know, sort of the under unconscious kinds of things right. that I think might be going on in his head, not conscious. Right. And, yes, of course, um, He's angry at at uh, at all of the things that you mentioned, and more conscious of those. But I was just hoping to give you some comfort by trying to explain, you know, some what may go, be going on in the deep recesses of his psychopathological mind. You know, I, I, I guess for me, um, I, I am incredibly interested in what makes people tick, and I love to people watch, and I love to get all in there and be analytical and. For him, I just, I never, I don't ever want to give him that much credit. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the at, or that because much that makes him human. What's that? Because that makes him too human. Yeah, and I, you know, when people refer to him by his first name, you know, or or the the, the high fiving of him and the signing, it, there's a part of me that just wants to maintain him as just the the vicious killer that he is, and yeah. attaching emotion to his childhood yeah. and, and generating any sympathy for what. And I'm not implying that's what you're doing, but for me, I just, I don't. 
I don't want to humanize him that much. Yeah, I can um, understand that. At the end that. of the day, he stabbed my brother in the heart, and I don't really care what happened in his childhood. We yeah. all have horrible upbringings. That doesn't make it. It doesn't make it okay to then go kill people. Sure. You know, and I. That it's a real. It's a struggle with me because my my background and my training and my experience is something completely different. Yeah. So, yes, you know, I can understand that. It's a difficult thing for us to process. Yes, I, I do. I can understand that. That must be difficult to wrestle with, and um, and yes, I agree, Fred, with uh, that. That that's his mo of needing to be in control, needing to win, needing to get revenge. All of it is what's coming out now too in his most recent crime. Well, I wish you all the best with Thank this, you. and I I admire your courage for doing this, for honoring Ron's memory, for punishing OJ as best as you can, since you were let down by the criminal courts. We were actually all let down by the not guilty verdict in the criminal courts and to help women of abuse and other victims through your foundation. So I really do wish you all the best. Thank you for being outspoken on our behalf as well. We appreciate that. Thank you. You're very welcome. Well, uh, the bottom line here is buy the book. (laughs) It's called If I Did It, Confessions of the Killer. Uh, It's not what you think, and it's really incredibly fascinating and, and does give a good bird's-eye view into what's really going on. I'd like to thank all my guests, Peter Haven, the attorney for the Goldman family, Charlene Martin, a literary agent extraordinaire, Eric Campman, the founder and president of Beaufort Books, the publisher and the CEO of Midpoint Trade Books, which is the distributor, Pablo Fenvez, the ghost writer, and Kim and Fred Goldman, the uh, family of Ron Goldman, who have uh, shown and continue to show tremendous courage. So thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Have you-